We're going to finish our Doctrine of Man and Sin class this morning, the last session as we've moved from Doctrine of Man to Doctrine of Sin for this second half of the class. Our last session, you can see the title there, Sin, Our Relationship to Sin as Christians. So we talked about sin in a more general sense with respect to humanity, and, and now we're going to talk about how what our relationship to sin is as Christians. So why don't I pray, and then we'll dive in to our this subject. Father, we thank you for, once again, being able to gather on the first day of the week, knowing that on this day of the week, Christ rose from the dead, and that his empty tomb was the beginning of the new creation, and is our hope that through his death and resurrection, Death was defeated in our lives as his people, and that we now walk in newness of life. We thank you that he has um, risen and ascended to your right hand, and that he ever lives to make intercession for us there. And that because of that, because of what he has done, and because of his ongoing intercession, we know that there is no condemnation toward us who are in Christ and that no one can bring any charge against us as his elect and nothing can separate us from his love. And so as we remember that even today, it's appropriate for us, we know, to gather for worship, to express our love and devotion to Christ and, and to sit at his feet like Mary did when he came to her house and to learn from him and to give our attention to his teaching and to eat it up like bread for our souls. And we pray that you would nourish and strengthen us by the teaching of your word, even this morning and in our morning worship service. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, I'm going to start with this question. This is our question we're going to address today. After being united to Jesus Christ by faith and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, what is the Christian's relationship to sin in this life? And uh, I, I would say that over the years, I've seen two people, Christians, fall into ditches on either side of this. One is the ditch of over-negativity, right? Underestimating, underappreciating the effect of Christ's work upon our life so that we view ourselves as no better than we were before, <laughs> Uh, no better off than we were before. But that's not correct. We are called in Scripture the saints of God, and there is a definitive change that has happened in our life. But on the other hand, of course, we see that there are, I remember having a conversation with a young man in uh, college at university who had begun to kind of disrupt the life of our little college Christian community because he was saying that, suggesting that if we truly are believer, if we truly are indwelt by the Spirit, then we need not sin anymore. And that he believed that he himself no longer sinned in any proper way. <laughs> and I thought, okay, well, I don't know what universe you are living in. Clearly, you don't see yourself um, the way that you ought. But you can see there are these two different sides of this, an over-pessimism, where you underestimate the change that has happened in us, and an, an over-optimism, where you can fall into sort of a perfectionism, like that of the old Arminians, Wesleyan tradition, etc. So, well, this is an important issue that we understand properly, what the Bible teaches about our relationship to sin as believers. And I want to start with this fact. Yeah. Just going to say that latter part that you spoke of has actually been taught here in Reading at a church. Oh. Um, we were in uh, in Wyoming. We were listening to different um, famous preachers yeah. and such, and that was being taught is that now you no longer sin. Anything you do is not a sin. Right. And this is my point. Yeah. In my home yeah. town, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, I I think it's actually um, been a fairly common error that people fall into. And, you know, you can understand why in some ways people want to go that route when you read the, the book of First John, you know, uh, where it uses very stark language regarding these things. But 
ultimately we need to interpret it properly. So here's the first thing I want to say. What is our relationship to sin as believers? A Christian is permanently freed from the eternal penalty of sin. Okay, so permanently freed from the eternal penalty of sin. This is perhaps the easiest and most straightforward of the things we could think about in this regard. And so let's go ahead and read some some verses here. Carly, would you be willing to read, these are the verses, Hebrews 9.26. And actually what I'll have you do is just read all three of these verses here. Okay, so 9.26. 10.10 and then 10.12-14. And then uh, Paul Rowe, if you could read uh, Romans 5.1, and then Chuck, I'll have you read these, Romans 8.1 and then Romans 8.33-34. So, um, obviously there are many verses in Hebrews that we could point to in this regard, but these particular verses are just uh, a sampling all right, it's going to be Bible. It's Peter's early book. Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> okay. They're probably stuck together. This is a Bible that you got at Christmas? Yes, yeah, it's, it's like a journal Bible, so it's got a little... Oh, yeah. What the heck? <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Okay. Or, oh, sorry, I'm sorry, you're in Hebrews. You're in Hebrews. <laughs> Hebrews, James. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm confusing you even more. Hebrews 9, 26, and then we'll read 10, 10, and then 10, 12 through 14. Okay, 9, 26 is going to be, okay. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the fountain of the world, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the, by the sacrifice of himself. All right, and then 10.10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And then 12 through 14. 14, okay. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected... For all time, those who are being sanctified. That's it. Okay. Now, I want to just point to you a number of things here. First of all, in verse 26, he says, He appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So notice that once for all language and the, the put away sin by this a single sacrifice So the idea is once for all time, he has put away sin for his people, for those for whom he died. And then if you go down to verses 12, you see the same kind of language. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So you see that language, once for all, sin being put away, his people being perfected for all time, even though they are being sanctified. And so uh, there is this language of once for all indicates a definitive, permanent break Uh, or salvation from the penalty of sin. In fact, down in verse 18, at the very end of that section, he says, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So we don't need any more earthly priests to offer any more sacrifices because the one sacrifice of Christ has secured our permanent forgiveness for all time. Okay, and so then uh, Romans 5.1 um, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I love this verse because I think if you're contrasting Protestantism with Roman Catholicism, this is one of the most clear, definitive verses that just really gets to the nub of the issue. Roman Catholicism says that justification is a process of becoming more and more just through the infusion of grace through the sacraments and that it won't even be completed when you die because where do you have to go after you die to sort of finish the job 
you have to go to purgatory to pay the last temporal punishments that your sins deserve. But, you know, the writer of Hebrews says that he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Paul says in Romans 5 that we have been justified, past, completed action, right? And now we have peace with God. Well, if you're thinking along the Roman Catholic view of justification, you don't have peace with God because that process needs to unfold over time. But if you're a Protestant, you recognize, no, we can say we have been justified. Justification isn't a process. It's a verdict in the past, not guilty, but righteous. And now we have peace with God, right? So permanent peace with God because there has been a once-for-all sacrifice to put away our sins, uh, to perfect us for all time. So, wonderful verse. And then one more section, Romans 1, 8, and then 1, 33 through 34. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then Romans 8, 30. shall bring any charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. All right, so Paul says there is now no condemnation, and obviously in the context that's from God toward us. There's no condemnation coming to us from God if we are in Christ. Why? Because Christ has died, he has been raised, he is at God's right hand interceding for us. So, the finished work of Christ upon the cross, his death and resurrection, his ongoing intercession for us at the right hand of the Father, which I think is perhaps a a neglected doctrine among us sort of modern evangelicals. It's interesting if you go and read the Puritans, they reflected very deeply on the ongoing intercession of Christ for us. But to think that right now, Christ is interceding on our behalf at God's right hand, based upon his finished work. These things assure us no more condemnation. No charges can possibly be brought against us who are God's elect because of these things. So, The first thing we have to establish is that a Christian is permanently freed from the eternal penalty of sin. So that has to be there as a a block in the structure here that we're trying to build when we're asking what is a believer's relationship to sin. So that's peace with God, right? Joy um, that we've been set free and we can never be, you know, there's there's no, um, what do you call that? Double jeopardy. You can't be tried again for this, for the things that have been paid for by Christ, right? All right. Any questions about that? Okay. Oh, Rich. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I walked in on a wonderful conversation during Christmas. So a bunch of grandkids were sitting around the table, and you know, what do you expect to hear? Well, I heard the unexpected. They were all discussing, in light of this doctrine, that our sins are covered as far as the east is from the west. The Christian. How do we stand in the final judgment mm-hmm. where the scriptures talk? I just looked one up and Christ speaking says, All idle words you will give an account for mm-hmm. the final judgment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if there's a short answer for that, but it was a neat yeah. discussion. I <laughs> do we say we are in the judgment? We are with Christ. We're in Him. Yeah, you know, it is a, a somewhat of a complicated issue. On the one hand, I think that our works are not irrelevant to the judgment, final judgment, because there are so many texts that indicate that the opposite, right? In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for our lives, for what we have done in the body, whether good or bad. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about if we built upon the foundation with wood, hay, or stubble, In that day, it will be exposed. Even if we are saved by fire, our works will be burned up. And whereas, so clearly, there is an accounting of our works. There is a, they are meaningful in the final judgment. And I think, but but in terms of our fundamental relationship with God, 
that's not what's being determined in the final judgment, I think. Rather, there is a, well, you could, to put it simply, eternal reward or loss of reward, I think. Now, now one of the reasons I think that you can see that is, you know, think of John 5, in that hour, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and come forth, some to a resurrection of life, some to a resurrection of judgment. It seems to me that the order in terms of eschatological events is first the re- return of Christ and the resurrection of his people. Then comes the final judgment. So when we stand before God in that final judgment, do you see there's we're already going to be resurrected and, and glorified. So the final judgment for God's people is not something to be feared. It's a, it's a public vindication Whereas for the the lost, it is a a final reckoning. But nevertheless, in that judgment day, there will be some weighing of our lives and some reward or even as 1 Corinthians 3 says, a loss of reward that your works may be burned up. So perhaps you are a pastor and you... 1 Corinthians 3, I think, is talking to people who are laboring on the foundation. You're a pastor... You're truly saved, but you are severely misguided in how you are leading your church, you know. And you adopted all the newest methods, and you've gathered a crowd, and you did all this stuff. But really, there wasn't spiritual activity going on here with real fruit, because what you were looking for was the wrong thing. And perhaps that will be exposed. You thought you were doing all this wonderful things for Jesus. But in the end, it will be exposed as really not worth much from an eternal perspective. So I think, whereas, you know, a mom, an aged mother, grandmother in a wheelchair who spent her, every opportunity she could praying for and ministering to her children and grandchildren, you know, perhaps her reward will be seen to be much greater than this <laughs> other. So I think something along those lines is is what we're talking about the issue the tech the particular text you're drawing out is is difficult you know because it seems like there's going to be a punishment of some sort for the words that you spoke and i think that would require more discussion I, i'm not sure actually i'd have to go look more closely at that text to see what he was talking about yeah katrina i think you kind of summed it up in the very beginning when we said that we're free from the penalty of our sins but we are going to have to be accountable for what we've done and I don't know about you, but I learned years ago that when I have done something wrong, to go to the person that I have wronged and apologize. And I hate to do that because it's embarrassing and it's difficult. And that's kind of what God is telling us to do, is that he's letting us know that the penalty for our sin has been paid for by Christ, but we still are going to have to give an account to him for what we have done with the gifts that he's given us, which is life. And so it kind of keeps me in check of remembering that I need to I don't I don't want to have a lot of that. I know I'm going to have a lot right. of you know accounting of what I have done or not done. Right. Um, but right. so it's not a, a judgment of penalty, it's a it's an accountability right. versus penalty of sin, you know, the, the death. Right. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, we will talk in the last slide here a, a little bit more about some of these issues, but I think that at least gets us somewhere down the road here, just to sort of draw in that that aspect of it. L- lest we take this truth and think, well, shall we not sin that grace might increase? Right, <laughs> as if our our the how we live our lives no longer matters. Okay, let's go to the next one. The next brick in the structure we're building is this. A Christian is no longer enslaved to sin, but is able to obey God by the Holy Spirit. So in the first slide, we talked about the penalty of sin, and the believer is permanently freed from it. What about the power of sin, sin which dominated us as unbelievers, so that we were enslaved to it? Well, how has that changed? Is there any change for us now as believers? Yes, a Christian is no longer enslaved to sin, but is able to obey God by the Holy Spirit. So let's look at these verses here. So Scott, if I could have you read Romans 6, 1 through 14, Quinn, Romans 8, 1 through 13, 
And then Diane, uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. So let's start with Romans 6. This, I, I'm, we're going to read a little bit longer passage here, but I want to just you to hear the full weight of it. Romans 6, 1 through 14. What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. But the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. When you read a passage like this, there's so much there that I would love to dwell on and explain, (laughs) but can't do it. But let me just point out some fundamental things here. One is that, you know, Paul in the first five chapters had been talking about justification, which is a legal declaration. So justification doesn't describe what has happened to you internally. Justification describes what has happened to you with respect to your legal standing before the court of heaven, as it were. To say that we are justified by faith even though we are sinners, guilty, is to say, you know, we were brought up on charges before God. We knew we were guilty. And yet God says, not guilty, but righteous. You can go free, right, from the penalty. And you say, well, how is that possible? Because God put forward his son as a propitiation, that he paid the redemption price for our release from the penalty. So that's a legal declaration. We are, this is why Paul could say we are simultaneously sinners and saints. We are guilty, but we've been justified because of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. But that doesn't speak at all to our internal spiritual condition. Here, Paul goes and moves to our internal spiritual condition. And he says, at the very same time, As you were justified, declared, not guilty, but righteous in the court of heaven, you also experienced a change in your relationship to your old man, right? So in verse 6, he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him. That term old self, literally in the Greek, it's old man. Anthropos is, you know, you you remember that you recognize the word anthropology. It it means, anthropos means man, your old man. Well, that makes you think of Adam, right? What's being talked about here is your sinful nature that you inherited from Adam. Who you were in Adam. You died to that old man, It used to enslave you, but now he says you are no longer enslaved to sin. So at the same time, so you were united to Christ. Union with Christ is the fundamental blessing of salvation. In Christ, you received justification. At the very same time, you received sanctification, a definitive break with your old sinful nature. It's still there, but it no longer enslaves you. So you can tell it's still there because he says in verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 
Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So you see, sin is still there. And it still seeks to dominate you, to bring you under its control. But what you, Paul is saying is you have to reckon yourself, consider yourself to be dead to that old man, to remaining sin and corruption, and alive to God. And you're no longer enslaved to your sinful nature like you were before, right? Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, where he says, you lived according to the lusts of your flesh. Now you are to present your bodies, your members of your body to God. Because you now, as he says in uh, verse 4, walk in newness of life. Well, when he says walk in newness of life, he's saying you've not only been freed from the penalty of death, you've been freed from this condition of spiritual death. You've been made alive in Christ. You've been regenerated by the Spirit. And the Spirit has freed you from the domination of your flesh. It's still there, but now you are able to serve God. So do you see that? So that's why Paul says, wait, wait, if anyone says, because I'm justified, that I can just go on sinning now because God will forgive me. You don't understand what's happened to you. You've not only been justified, you've also died with Christ and been made alive with him. So anyone who just has no problem going on sinning, you have to ask whether this has really happened to them. Okay, so the next section is Romans 8, 1 through 13. Let's read this together. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead and because of sin, The Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Ah, so you see... It's really the same thing as Romans 6, isn't it? It's just that now everything is being framed through the work of the Spirit. So he's saying, before you were in the flesh, you didn't have, you weren't regenerated, you were just flesh. You were dead in sin. You lived according to the lusts of your sinful nature. And you didn't have any desires to do what is right and your flesh was hostile to God, it didn't submit to God's law, and therefore it couldn't because it was bent upon sin. You were slaves to sin. But now, you know, he's condemned sin in the flesh of Christ, so there's forgiveness, and he's put his spirit in you that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So now you have the Spirit, and the Spirit of God enables you, empowers you to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to now obey the commands of God. And he's basically saying, look, if you have the Spirit, you will obey God. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not a Christian, he's saying. If you have the Spirit, then you are not a debtor to the flesh, you're, you're not, you don't owe the flesh anything. You're not supposed to obey what it wants, but you are to put to death the deeds of the body and that you might live. You are to fulfill the righteous requirement of God's law, verse 4. And so, 
You know, this is nothing other than the new covenant blessing. I will put my spirit within you. I will write my law upon your heart. I will take out your heart of stone. I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my commands. Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh in those days, your sons and daughters. So this is the the long-awaited blessing that the Messiah brought. Not only forgiveness of sins, but the outpouring of the Spirit to bring new spiritual life and to enable you to finally do what Israel never could do. Because it had those laws on the tablet of stone, but its heart was stony and dead. But now you have the law written on your heart by the Spirit. You have a new heart and you want to obey God. But notice the flesh is still there. And you have to be like William Wallace and put it to death. By the power of the Spirit. And we know that that's a battle. That's true spiritual warfare, not casting demons out of the corner of your building, but putting to death the flesh and its desires and its deeds and walking now, being led by the Spirit. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. All right, finally, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it is by grace that you have been saved. Through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that you, no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see, here is, in a nutshell, everything, the first two slides, right? Saved by grace through simple faith and trust in Christ, apart from your own works. Right? Justification by faith alone. But saved unto good works. In fact, created in Christ Jesus. There's this Holy Spirit, the new spiritual life. You are already a new creation. And the end result of that new creation work is that you might do good works. And there are many passages like this. I think of uh, the passage in Titus 3 where he talks about how he saved us, that we might be a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We are to be what Israel was supposed to be when God said, Be holy, uh, for I am holy. They were to be a people who reflected God's character in their lives. And now, but, but the problem was, the Old Covenant didn't provide that regeneration. Some people in the Old Covenant were regenerate, like a David and Elijah, but it wasn't part of the promises of the covenant. But in the New Covenant, they shall all know the Lord from the least to the greatest. They will all be forgiven of their sins, and they will all have the law written on their hearts by the Spirit. So this is new creation, saved apart from works by grace through faith, Saved to good works by new creation, by God's design, uh, that you should walk in them. So, a Christian is no longer enslaved to sin, but is able to obey God by the Holy Spirit. All right? Any questions on this uh, before we move forward? These are the sort of two key cogs in our relationship. Freed from the penalty of sin and uh, permanently and liberated from the enslaving power of sin. Okay, let's move forward. But there is still a part of a Christian which remains corrupted by sin, so that it is a struggle for them to obey God, and they will still sin. So here's where we're avoiding the ditch of perfectionism. And I've already hinted at this by the passages that we've looked at, but let's look at a few other passages here that will establish this even further. So let's see where we at. Steve, would you read Ephesians 4, 20 through 24? Pam, if you're able, Galatians 5, 16 through 17. And then Arlene, I'll give you a longer one here, Romans 7, 14 through 25. And then Paul, I'll just give you one verse, James 3, 2. I'm sure you have that one memorized, but just... Uh, all right, uh, so we'll start with Ephesians four twenty through 24. But that is not the way you learn Christ, 
and that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness, holiness. You'll notice the language old self, new self, which I it's the same here as it was in Romans, old man, new man. So you think about it this way. You were the old man. Before you were saved, that's who you were. You were the old man. You were, you had inherited a sinful nature from Adam, and that's what defined your identity. You were fallen in Adam. Now you are the new man, and the new man created after the likeness of God. You see, there's the image of God language. You're a new creation. The image, this, this part of you that is, your, okay, your new nature, as it were, is being renewed into the image of God. What was lost in Adam is being regained in Christ. What was lost, what you inherited from the first man is now being replaced by what you inherit from the second man, the second Adam. But they're both still there, right? So the new man is who you are definitively. You're part of the new creation. You are in Christ. But the old man is still there. Like um, a tumor, right? Still there. Still festering. Still enticing you to sin. And so what you have here is a call to put off the old man and the language of put off and put on is like, it's the language you typically use to talk about putting off an old set of clothes and putting on a new set of clothes. You are to put off who you were in Adam and you are to put on who you are in Christ. And why are you to do that? Because this is who you truly are now. So you are to live to be who you are, right? You're to live according to your new identity and new nature in Christ. But because there is this part of you that is still unredeemed, because Adam is still hanging around, you have to, by the Spirit, keep putting him to death, keep putting him off like an old set of clothes. So this is what Katrina was talking about earlier. You know, your wife doesn't put a new thing of toilet paper on the roll and you go in there and it's and you're, you got to walk all the way out to the garage to get a new thing and you're like why why doesn't she ever and there's the old man stirred up in your flesh again you know it's your flesh anger anger resentment and you go into the kitchen what's wrong honey nothing i'm fine because you know you shouldn't be upset about it but there's that but so what do you have to do by the spirit you have to put to death that old man, and you have to walk now in, according to the new man, put on the new man. Let, what does that look like? Well, verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away with, from you, along with all malice, put off the old. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. There it is. That's what it looks like, right? Yeah, not so easy, is it? That's why I said it's, it's sort of like if you're, I don't know. I mean, I'm not suggesting you go watch this movie, but I'm just saying like when I, you know, when I was younger, I watched that movie Braveheart. You could just see those, the battle scenes with them running out. Ah, you know, like that is a pretty accurate description of what our Christian life is like. Like it's, it's spiritual warfare because the flesh So just because you're a new creation doesn't mean that the flesh became less sinful. It didn't. It's still just as bad as it ever was. And it's still powerful. And it seeks to bring you back under its control. And if you give yourself over to those desires again and again, it will hold you captive. And so Paul has to say in Galatians 6.1, if any of you is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. You can become entangled and caught. And so, you know, it very much is like a battle. Or we have to help each other. You know, we have to restore the, the limb that is injured. We have, to, we have to be violent with our sin. We can't mess around with our sin. So, that's one text. Let's look at Galatians five sixteen through 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So not only is the flesh still there, the, the ongoing presence of the flesh, how are we to think of the flesh? That part of us, which is still unredeemed, the old man from Adam, somehow connected with our unresurrected bodies. It's still there, and it is waging war against our, the new man, against the spirit and his desires as he teaches us in Christ how to live. And because of that, we will not, it will, we will be kept from doing the things we want to do. So if you go home from this and say, you know what? That's it. I'm done with sin. I'm never going to sin again. I'm just going to always do what the spirit wants. You will find that you will fail and you will fail this afternoon and again this evening and again tomorrow morning, right? Why? Because this flesh is still there. And so this is why. And in fact, let's go ahead and read Romans seven fourteen through 25. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law. Confessing that the law is good, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Amen. So, I'm not going to get into how to interpret this passage, but just suffice it to say that after doing a lot of thinking about it over the years and weighing up different arguments, I do believe this is a description Uh, best understood as a description of the experience of a regenerate believer that in your new, according to your new man, your new self in Christ, you have this desire to obey the law, which you wouldn't have if you were still unregenerate. But sin still dwells in you, in your flesh. There's remaining corruption, indwelling sin. And that is always close at hand. (laughs) And it keeps you, because of that dynamic, you will find yourself often not doing what you want to do. I want to love my wife as Christ of the church, but because of sin, I find myself still being resentful or being angry or speaking harshly, things like that. I want to no longer be greedy, but perfectly generous with my money. And yet I find myself still hoarding and withholding what I ought to give, etc., etc. And this is why, and Paul will just read your verse here, James 3 2. For we all stumble in many ways. Anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. So, th- this is why we all stumble in many ways. <laughs> this is why we still sin. This is why we can rightly be called sinners still, and yet also rightly be called saints at the same time. Now, fortunately, there is a trajectory here. We're leaving behind the identity of sinners, and we are moving toward the full realization of our identity as saints. But right now, there's this war, right? And, and there, will, there will not be perfection. Now, on the one hand, we need to be careful that... I remember there was a young man in my congregation in Sacramento who put Romans 7.14 on his license plate. <laughs> like... I am of flesh, sold under bondage to sin, right? 
because he's so identified with this passage in Romans 7. But Paul never meant us to dwell in some inordinate way upon this dynamic. We're to actually be moving toward the very end of the passage. Um, Thanks be to God, (laughs) right, who delivers us. And into Romans 8, there is no condemnation. We have the spirit, the spirit of adoption. We are not debtors to sin, but we are to put to death the deeds of the flesh. So we shouldn't, on the one hand, be overly morbid about our our condition. Uh, We should hate sin. We should fight against it. But we should recognize that we are still going to sin and that the struggle that we have with sin, you know, some people, I've, I've met dear Christian brothers and sisters who they, they live in a world of guilt and shame and uh, struggle with their assurance of salvation because they struggle with sin. <laughs> and they think, surely, you know, Pastor Jeremy, you don't struggle in the way that I do. I mean, the thoughts that go through my mind, the things that I do, I just, I can't possibly be a Christian. You say, why would you think that, right? Because Romans 7, Galatians 5, I mean, this is our reality. We have remaining corruption and none of us wants the other, everyone else to see everything that goes on in our hearts and our minds. So on the, on the one hand, not overly morbid. On the other hand, not perfectionistic. So I, I really want to get to my last two slides, but I realize that there's probably a lot of questions here. Let me move on just and try to quickly do this for the sake of time here. I want to add another brick in here. While Christians are no longer under God's wrath for their sin, they will still experience various consequences when they sin. We could even call these temporal judgments. In other words, not, these are not, this is not the wrath of God. It's not the final judgment. We're saved from that. But there are judgments. You could call them chastisements or God's discipline for our sin in the present. And this will require us to repent and to be forgiven by God. So it's very interesting, right? This is, uh, you know, getting back a little bit to the track that Rich was on earlier. Let's look at some of these passages. And and I just, I want to start, let me just read a few of these. We won't be able to read all of them. Since we're already in James, let's look at James 4 verse 1. Now, he's talking to Christians here. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So you have James, you know, I I talk about this in pastoral ministry. There are some people who need you to come along and just lift them up and comfort and encourage them. And there are some people, they need you to come along and go, boom, right in the note. Stop it. You know, like they need, so admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all, right? Sometimes we need to be admonished. Boom! Right? And that's what James is doing here. He's confronting them for their sin, helping them to see the true gravity of them, sir, and calling them to repentance. And he's saying, if you continue in your pride, God will oppose you. If you humble yourself, he will restore you and give you grace. So that's a dynamic, right? Even though we've been permanently forgiven, yet we need to repent when we sin. How about this passage, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves angels and are not, apostles and are not, 
That would, that would really be something if they called themselves angels and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, let me just point out here that we're talking about a church in which there are many good fruits, and yet they've fallen into a grievous sin. They have lost the love for Christ that they had at first. They need to repent or there will be chastisement, a temporal judgment. It doesn't mean these people will go to hell. It means that he may come and remove their lampstand. You know what I think that means? I will come and close down your church. Right? And by the way, most of these, I don't think any of these churches are still in existence, right? God can come along and say, you've gone astray, you're, you're living in unrepentance, and the church can, he'll close down the church. By the way, does that happen today? Mm-hmm. I mean, just walk, drive around our town and, and look at various apostate churches that are basically empty because they've abandoned so that doesn't mean that every person who was in that church wasn't a Christian and they're going to hell, but there was a temporal judgment, a chastisement. What about 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 34? Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. You see that? So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment, But the other things I will give directions when I come. He calls them brothers. They're gathering as a church to take the Lord's Supper. But because they were grievously sinning, they were guilty. They were grievously sinning in the way they were taking the Lord's Supper. God was judging them. Temporal judgments. What were the temporal judgments in this case? Weakness, illness, death. (laughs) It's, It's remarkable. He struck some like he did with Israel under the Old Covenant. He struck some with illness. He struck some dead. Now, did he do this because they weren't Christians? He he explicitly says, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world, right? So this was the loving discipline of a heavenly father in the form of temporal judgments upon his people, his new covenant people for their sins. So even though they were permanently forgiven, from the eternal penalty of their sin, they could still fall into sin in this life and receive temporal chastisement, even called here judgments from God. That didn't determine their eternal state, but they did count for this life, right? Now, you just think, what does this look like? You know, you could have a a wayward son or daughter in the faith who professed faith in Christ and they they were baptized, they were part of the church, and then they became entangled in son's sin and you watched how that sin ravaged their life. And yet they still profess faith. They, they're struggling and wrestling with it. They repent and they are coming back and forth. They're still part of the church, but you see the consequences of that and, and, and how it could ruin a marriage. It could... They could lose their job. They could become sick and ill. They could die, right? The Lord disciplines those he loves. So we can't remove that from the equation just because we say we are permanently forgiven. Doesn't mean that the Lord won't chastise us with temporal judgments in this life for our sin. And our sin disrupts When we are living in sin, right? We all sin every day, but when we live in blatant sin, it disrupts the quality of our communion with God. So if you have a member of the church who is, you know, looking at pornography or 
they're cheating on their taxes or they're in, engaged in unethical business practices. And then they come to church and they sing the songs and they participate in worship and they're hiding this whole area of their life. They know it's wrong, but they're not repenting of it. Do you think that this is going to affect this? Is this going to affect their communion with God and their experience of their relationship with God? Yes. And that's why Jesus says, every day we're to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who sin against us. This is why John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. So this is, this is where we can be definitively forgiven so that our fundamental relationship with God is secure. And yet sin can disrupt the quality of our communion with God on a daily basis. And that's why we need to be confessing our sins and making things right with the Lord so that our communion with God will be sweet. And we won't experience this relational distance that comes from living and walking in sin for periods of time. Okay, I'm going to have to skip the last one, but I want to give a chance. Does anyone have questions about that? That things that they're like, Jeremy, what about this that I've, I've left unclear? Does that make sense? Are any of you guys going, wow, I, I do not know about that. All right. Okay. Okay, Diane. At the beginning, we were comparing Catholics and Protestants and about how the Catholics sin, but they're, they go to their priests and they do what they are told to do, but right. they're never really forgiven and they're still, when they're going to have to pay that penalty when they're in purgatory. Is that? Well, yeah, it is, it is, um, it's complicated in the Catholic system. So obviously in Catholicism, you are, regenerated and cleansed in an initial way from your sins and from the stain of original sin at your baptism as an infant. But then you sin and those sins can be either mortal sins, which can remove you from a state of grace, or they can be venial sins, which can be removed through the sacraments, right? And if you go, if you're talking about mortal sins, you need to go through a process of penance to get back into a state of grace and So, and then over the course of your life, there are temporal punishments which have not been fully dealt with through penance that need to be dealt with in purgatory, which is the the purging of you from all the final temporal punishments of sin through an experience of suffering for a period of time. That could be 100 years if you're really good and uh, 10 million years if you're really bad. And throughout your life, you need the sacraments, you need, you know, the mass, etc., which is, uh, you know, the, the historical death of Christ brought into the present. And so that it's a genuine propitiatory sacrifice. And as you eat that bread and drink that, you are taking that in and having your sins freshly cleansed. And so it is a way different system than what we you know, it, we just, it doesn't register with us, you know. And this is why a lot of people talk about Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. And they say, hey, we're basically all the same. You know, we have some doctrinal differences, but it's really not that big of a deal. And we can partner together. And But no, that just shows a lack of understanding of the Roman system and how it relates to. Uh... So anyways, we'll leave that there. Please come and talk with me if you have further questions about these things. And I'm happy to talk about it. Father, thank you for just uh, what you have done. You've revealed it to us in your word, what you have done to definitively defeat sin in our lives, that you've, uh, Christ has perfected us for all time through his death, that we have been freed from the condemnation and eternal penalty of sin, and that he has liberated us from the enslaving power of our sinful nature and enabled us by the Holy Spirit to walk in obedience to you. But we also know that sin remains and we will not be perfect. And it will be a battle against our old sinful nature. We pray that you would strengthen us in that and help us to always be humbling ourselves. You're opposed to the proud, but you give grace to the humble, always confessing our sin daily, 
clearing the decks, as it were, and and asking for forgiveness for our daily sins so that we keep our relationship, our communion with you, our experience of fellowship with you fresh and sweet. And we pray that you would, in your loving care, chastise us as you see fit to keep us from becoming entangled in sin and drifting away from you. And we know that you will do that if we belong to you, Father. Thank you for the sealing of the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance until the day we take possession of it. And we thank you that already we belong to the new creation and we are new creation in Christ. And we thank you and praise you for this. We pray for strength and endurance and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.